Hi, podcast listeners. It's me, your host, Harmony Hunter. Before we start our show today, we wanted to let you know that there's a podcast survey at www.history.org. So if you're a listener, we'd appreciate it if you would drop by, answer a few questions, give us a couple suggestions. We'd like to hear what you think. Now to the show. You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. This year marks the 300th anniversary of Bruton Parish Church, the historic brick structure that anchors the center of Colonial Williamsburg's historic area. Today we celebrate not only the birthday of the church, but the birthday of its first organist, Peter Pelham. Peter Pelham was a colorful citizen of Williamsburg, and he is portrayed today by Michael Monaco. Michael, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Good morning. Well, tell us a little bit about Pelham and uh, his connection to Bruton Parish Church. Well, uh, very simply, uh, it's probably even greater than we can uh, imagine because we know that Pelham arrives in the Tidewater area as early as 1749. And he is registered in St. John's Parish in Hampton. There is some anecdotal evidence that perhaps he was at Bruton Parish as early as 1751, rather than the official appointment time of 1755. However, uh, the scholars are out to lunch on that one. They're still debating. But uh, it seems to me that there is no account that he left the area. So he may have had contact earlier on and perhaps played at the church uh, using a borrowed instrument, a small organ, similar to what the Governor Dunmore had in the uh, palace, a little, uh, you know, bureau organ, something like that. And uh, his influence in the city, in the church, I mean, it, it really is a very, to me anyhow, very fascinating how he ingratiated himself. He was in a society of people that was far above his level, far above his station. And that's not uncommon with somebody who has a, a great talent, an actor, a musician. But considering the uh, you know smallness of Williamsburg and being a little colloquial place, he gets his finger in several different pies. The church, of course. He is also a civil servant. You know, he serves as a, a clerk or secretary to a Governor Fauquier, Lord Botetot. Uh, Lord Dunmore promotes him to be the keeper of the public jail. All civil service jobs, and there are several people who were Bruton Parish uh, parishioners who on various occasions came to his aid, financial and otherwise, when things were tough, particularly St. George Tucker, uh, Benjamin Powell, and they, they vouched for him and helped him out. And as a matter of fact, St. George Tucker, in his later years, uh, Pelham really fell upon hard financial times. He helped him out time and time and time again and had this wonderful, warm relationship that you could see when he just talks about him. Uh, I mean, it's very nice to see that. And these are some of Williamsburg's really untouchable They are elite. the elite. They are the elite. So when we celebrate Pelham's 293rd birthday this December, what are we celebrating? What are we remembering about this man? The more research that I have done, and as I've, I've told many people, now that the digital age has opened up, my gosh, there's so many wonderful things to find on the internet about him. Uh, I think that for many years we sort of soft-pedaled his importance. I think he was a far more uh, prominent musician than people tend to think of him in the past. We have now some uh, concrete evidence of his compositions in the form of a notebook 
that dates to 1744 that Colonial Williamsburg now owns. And so that's wonderful. And I was able to hold that in my own little hands and play some of those compositions. And just judging by what people said about him, first-person accounts, for instance, uh, we have uh, a lady, a very fine lady, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, by the name of Lady Deloraine. She's from the famous Fenwick family. Well, she encountered Peter Pelham when he was in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, with his teacher, uh, Carl Theodore Pockelbell, and he performed. And... This lady happened to know Pelham's grandfather in London. She writes this wonderful letter, and she describes him as a very agreeable, entertaining young man, very comical and entertaining, who performs very well on the harpsichord, a very clever, genteel young man. I mean, she was really laying it on, so obviously he impressed her. And uh, many years later, in his, uh, shall we say, silver years, in 1783, there was a gentleman from Scotland by the name of Sir Alexander Macaulay, and Pelham played a concert at Bruton Parish, and this fellow was there, and he described him as the modern-day Orpheus, the inimitable Pelham. And he also describes the organ there of a hundred tones. Well, there were a lot more than a hundred pipes, but he said it was a hundred tones, so he was very impressed. And that opinion was also shared by St. George Tucker. So I feel very fortunate that I'm able to put him out in the public and present those sides of him. Where does Pelham's story begin? What's his early training like? Well, uh, actually it's very interesting. He was born in London, and I was able to uh, digitally uh, access all of the records at St. Paul's Covent Garden. Uh, his, uh, he was born December the 9th, 1721, and shortly thereafter was christened. And uh, his father, for whatever reason, and there's, uh, that's another wonderful story, he decided to come to colonial America, leaving a fairly lucrative career behind. And it seems some people suggest perhaps there may have been some financial difficulties, perhaps even some sort of scandal. So he finds his way to Boston. And uh, he settles in Boston, Mr. Pelham's father, in 1726. So little Peter was but five years of age. So God knows what memories he may or may not have had of London. Uh, what's of interest, in uh, December 30th in 1731, when little Peter would have been 10 years of age, there's an advertisement in the Boston Gazette that his father is hosting a concert in the great room of their house. And that's the very first example we have of a public concert in colonial America. And to have the Pelham name associated with that is, is fascinating. I just love it. Uh, from that point, uh, his father procures for him a wonderful teacher. You may have heard the name of the great German composer Johann Pockelbell of Pockelbell Cannon fame. Well, his son, Carl Theodore Pockelbell, sometimes referred to as Charles Pockelbell or Charles Percival, they kind of mangled names back then, uh, shows up in colonial America and Peter Pelham is apprenticed to him and spends 10 years with this man, sucking up all of this information and knowledge, this great, wonderful European heritage of, you know, truly classical music, as well as the art of organ building. He teaches him to assemble organs, which is going to come in handy because Mr. Pelham is the gentleman who assembles the organ at Bruton Parish Church in 1755, so on and so forth. So that's a great pedigree. And he takes him around. They go to New York. They go to Charleston, South Carolina. So he is being exposed to uh, various cultures 
churches that he would not have had uh, in Boston. Uh, when he returns to Boston in 1744, he finds himself in a great job. He is appointed the organist of Trinity Church in Boston at a wonderful salary of 100 pounds a year, and the very next year they raise it to 120. And he's paid to install the organ there. And you would say, wow, he's set up fine. And for whatever reason, again, uh, his father remarried in 1748 to a young lady by the name of Mary Singleton Copley. And she brought her little young son, John. And he adopts him as John Singleton Copley as Pelham's half-brother, the great portrait painter. And whatever, there was just some sort of tension. Pelham leaves right after that. And in 1749, he is recorded in the parish records in St. John's in Hampton here in Virginia. So one can only speculate because he never again will make that money that he was making in Boston, you know, with 120 pounds a year when he is paid at Bruton Parish to be the organist. And that is the question when he is paid is 20 pounds a year. So that's a fair reduction of 100 pounds, which was a considerable sum of money. And his entire life in Williamsburg, despite what he accomplished, despite it, he was always chasing his tail financially. It never seems to have been a moment where there was, you know, prosperity for him. Uh, and we do have some good fortune in his life. As I said, you know, St. George Tucker, Benjamin Powell helping out. Also, Lord Dunmore, Lord Dunmore paid Benjamin Powell 500 pounds, no small amount, to add another four rooms on the apartment at the jail. So there was an eight-room apartment at the jail when Pelham became the jailer. And, of course, you know Pelham and his wife Anne were blessed with 14 children. And at the time, <laughs> at the time he was uh, keeper of the jail, there would have been uh, eight of those children living with him. And then shortly thereafter, his sons go off and, and marry and whatnot. So it is interesting that there were some, uh, some good times for that, but always, always seeking out, you know, funds. And then, of course, you know, once we start to become our own nation, everyone is in financial trouble. And let's consider Bruton Parish Church. That is the Church of England. Well, we reject the king, who is the head of the Church of England, what does Bruton Parish become? Is it a part of the Church of England anymore? You've rejected the leader, so on and so forth. They're, these were big conflicts that they had to deal with. And of course, eventually, we will have the American Episcopal Church, but that's not going to happen right away. So there's the question of the fact that Mr. Pelham is paid for these positions. You know, these were government positions. The church was a government position to be the organist of the church. We, you know, cut the head off, so to speak. So financially, where does his salaries come from? Who's going to pay him now? And this is a fascinating idea. I never, I never thought of before. But to worship at the, at the, Church of England, in a way, is to worship the king. If the king is the head of the church, this was a big problem. And and believe me, uh, they they figured that out uh, early on, and uh, they were dealing with with this conflict. And what do you do with you know a community of believers? who've had this their whole life, you know, it's very, very, very uh, traumatic uh, when you have something as secure as a familial religion, and then all of a sudden, you know, the rug is pulled out from under you. What do you do? Where do you go? And this was, this was a 
problem that existed, of course, uh, throughout the colonies. And there were other churches that were, were creeping up, but you know, what do you do with basically the mother church? Uh, that was the official state church, you know. You could worship in other places, but you still had to, uh, you know, show up occasionally in the Church of England or pay a fine. And there were many people who loved to show up and, you know, fling that shilling at the court clerk saying, here is my fine, and not go to church. But that be said, uh, that, that's, that's a dynamic that is really touched upon, those transition years, you know, what, what's going to happen, the uncertainty of it all. And um, that in itself, for me, that, that, that's a book, you know. So when we think about Pelham alongside American revolutionary, um, early American heroes like Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, you know, all of these great luminaries of the American Revolution, what's Pelham's place among them? What's Pelham's mark on early America, on our culture? Well, you have to, uh, you know, again, the best way to, to answer that is to respond with what we have facts for, what we can actually say about him. And, June the 4th, 1777, an event happens at the Capitol, which was that benefit concert for Pelham, the fundraiser. In order for him to have that happen, he needed to get the permission of our first American governor, Patrick Henry. And if you know anything about Mr. Henry, Mr. Henry never would have granted that permission had not Pelham clearly demonstrated what side of the fence he was on. And two of his sons were decorated heroes in the Revolutionary War. Uh, so we know that, you know, there was uh, this fervor of patriotism. And that's something that stayed with the family for, for generations. And, of course, uh, in the Civil War, you may have heard of the gallant Pelham, John Pelham, Major John Pelham. That's Peter Pelham's grandson, you know, great-grandson, excuse me. And uh, so they had this, you know, honor of country and whatnot. So, again, he would have been definitely a patriot, and uh, there would be no question that he would have been embracing all that would have been, been coming down, despite the fact that, financially speaking, you know, had he had the monies to do so, it would have made perfect sense for him, like so many of them did, to go back to England, you know? Uh, he had ties there, he, he had people that knew him, uh, financial assistance if necessary, but he didn't. And he stayed here and clearly uh, chose his lot, and uh, I would say no trouble that we could qualify him as a patriot. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. I feel like we could talk all afternoon <laughs> about the different facets you've brought off, but to suffice to say, we're celebrating his birthday this December, and we hope that all of our listeners will learn more on our websites, on their next visit, and at your next presentation. Thank you so much for being My here My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We're always glad to hear your feedback. Send us an email at podcast.history.org. <laughs>